you'd take your copy of God's Word and open it to the book of Luke. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 21 this morning. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, uh, words will be on the screen that you're welcome to look to, but also would encourage you uh, to take the copy of God's Word in front of you, that black book that's our pew Bible, and you'll find this on the New Testament portion on page 45. It's about two-thirds of the way through, numbering starts over in the New Testament, and this is on page 45. I also encourage you, if you don't have a Bible of your own, that you would take that one home with you as our church's gift to you and would encourage you to commit to read it. Now, in July of 2013, there was a major world event. Some journalists camped outside three weeks ahead of time. At its peak, it's estimated that it generated over 25,000 tweets per minute and 5% of the total global news. Millions of people of all types of ethnicities, nationalities, and social standings were locked in to hear the latest reports. Do you know what it was? What could have possibly attracted such worldwide attention? It was the birth of a royal son. Prince George of Cambridge was born to Prince William and Duchess Kate Middleton. Now, if that's how the world celebrated the arrival of a royal son who isn't even next in line to be king... What should we expect for the arrival of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords? How should the world have welcomed its Creator, Jesus Christ? What kind of response should we have to God taking on flesh and being born of a woman? Well, technology certainly has changed the way we communicate drastically. But within the context of the world as it was some 2,000 years ago, what could we realistically expect? Maybe international fasting or feasting. Maybe some new massive palace being built. Maybe monuments in honor of this newborn king springing up all over the place. And probably worldwide hysteria. And many of us know the Christmas story so well that the weight of what happens in these verses doesn't even fall on us. And contrary to what any of us would have expected, in the stillness of night, in the seclusion of a stable, The Savior of the world is born for His people. And this morning we're going to be looking at four truths that Luke tells us about the birth of Jesus to help us meditate on this glorious reality that the King has come. So let's ask God now to help us understand the wonder of this moment afresh. Father, we ask that this would not be lost on us. Help us not in 
our familiarity to lose sight of the wonder of what it is, what it means that you have sent your son. And help us to understand from your word the great hope that is offered to us here. Encourage our hearts through your word in Jesus' name. Amen. In verses 1 through 5 of chapter 2, we see that the birth of Jesus was historical. The birth of Jesus was historical. Follow along with me in these first five verses. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. Now Luke has already touched on these themes several times up until this point in his gospel, but specifically in this section, he wants his readers, us included, to see that the birth of Jesus was historical. The events that he describes aren't fiction. They happened at a real time with real people in a real place. Within the first five verses of this chapter, Luke references ten proper names with the full confidence that these details could be checked out and confirmed by even his most skeptical readers. Luke explains that by order of the emperor, Caesar Augustus, the entire Roman Empire was commanded to be registered. Rome had conquered all of the known civilized world at that point. And so this would have included all of the different people groups under the control, with the Jews being one. The census was for military and taxation purposes. As an act of tolerance, the Jews were exempted from the draft, but they were not, not surprising, exempted from the taxes. And this was a major source of tension for the Jewish people because essentially this taxes in large part went to fund Rome's massive military. And so then as a subjugated nation, that meant that they were using their money in large part to fund the very power that they wanted to see overthrown. But on a more immediate level, it meant that they were required to go back to their ancestral homes regardless of how far they moved away and regardless of whether or not the timing was convenient. In Joseph and Mary's case, that meant traveling from Nazareth to Bethlehem, which was some 90 miles away, when she's coming to the end of her pregnancy at a time before suspension and airlift. And once they got there, it meant unusually large crowds and frustratingly long lines to trace back family ties. Think Black Friday pre-COVID meets the DAV. This would not have been a particularly enjoyable experience. Now add to that stress being super pregnant, and then add to that stress not being able to find a place to stay. This would have been, despite our sentimental understandings of it, a very difficult time. But there's more going on here than that. 
Something bigger was happening according to God's plan. You see, hundreds of years earlier, God had announced through the prophet Micah, but you, O Bethlehem Epaphrath, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. That is to say, as we now know it, the Christ would be born in Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Well, in short, it was because of its connection to the tribe of Judah and to the line of David. Jacob, all the way back in Genesis 49.10, had prophesied about Judah, the scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet. And this is narrowed even further from the line of Judah down to the line of David in 2 Samuel 7.16 when God promised David that his house, his kingdom, and his throne would be established forever. And so in keeping with his promises, God sovereignly orchestrated the exact events and timing necessary to cause Jesus to be born in Bethlehem, the birthplace of David, who was from the tribe of Judah. He was over the Romans' rise to power. He was over the decree of Caesar Augustus to guide Joseph and Mary right where they needed to be, right when they needed to be there. Now for my non-Christian friends in the room, what do you think about the historical nature of the birth of Jesus? Do you find yourself thinking of the Christmas story very much like you think of Santa and Rudolph and Frosty the Snowman or any number of other sentimental fantasies. Well, it's often claimed that the Jesus of history has been warped and transformed by the church to be more legendary than actually factual. But often, if I might say so, those claims are made by people who haven't actually considered the facts and claims of Scripture on their own terms. What you'll find is that God does nothing haphazardly. He has orchestrated the details of human history to bring about the fulfillment of His plan of redemption. The birth of Christ wasn't out of nowhere. All along, the Scriptures had been pointing forward to Jesus. So then let me just lovingly challenge you to search the Scriptures yourself. Don't take somebody else's word for it. Do your own homework. Develop your own good, hard questions and ask them. And why don't you start by picking up the same Bible reading plan that many in our church will be going through in 2021. We don't have anything to hide. We'd be happy to talk with you about what you're reading, about what we're reading, and, and try to answer any questions you have. And if you're interested in that, or you'd like to talk to me about that, well, come find me at the end of this service. So, the, the birth of Jesus was historical. And next we see in verses 6 and 7, the birth of Jesus was humble. The birth of Jesus was humble. Pick up in verse 6. And while they were there, the time for her to give the time came for her to give birth. 
And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman. That's the way Paul summarizes these events in Galatians 4.4. The baby that had been conceived by the Holy Spirit and hidden inside Mary's womb had now emerged. The angels in the next section, they're going to remind us that the firstborn son of Mary is in fact the exalted son of God. But don't miss the humble way that Jesus is born. The God who saw to the rise of the Romans and the timing of this census hadn't forgotten to orchestrate the details surrounding the birth of His Son. It was no accident that Jesus was born in a stable and laid in a manger. In fact, Luke highlights that fact three times to make sure we don't miss it in verse 7, verse 12, and verse 16. This is exactly how the Father planned it. But why? What did it signify? Well, it pointed to Jesus' humility. And now, Of course, that the Son of God would leave heaven to come to earth in the first place proves this point. But to make sure we don't miss it, He was laid in a feeding trough for animals. And that's not where any of us would have expected to find the Lord of all creation. But the One by whom, through whom, and for whom all things were created came to serve His people in humility. As Paul says in Philippians 2, 6 and 7, though He was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Now actually, Paul takes it a step further in the next verse to emphasize the greatest expression of Christ's humility. In verse 8, he says, being found in human form, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. From the very beginning of his life on this earth to its end, there would be no confusion. The Savior of the world had come to save sinners. By giving up His life as a ransom for many. This Savior is gentle and lowly of heart. Friends, the Son of God chose the path of humility because He truly is great. He chose to be born as a baby in order to hang on a cross and be laid in a tomb to save sinners. Now the world looked on this scene by using those same faulty metrics we saw Samuel use when he first was introduced to Jesse's sons in 1 Samuel 16. You may remember the Lord corrected him saying, do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. 
on the outside, it looked like this was just another birth of just another Hebrew boy to just another poor couple. And while certainly I don't want to undermine the fact that Jesus was fully man like every other baby boy, He was and is also fully God. He was and is the image of the invisible God. And because of that, the birth of Jesus was honored. The birth of Jesus was honored. Pick up in verse 8 through 14. In the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom He is pleased. The good news of the birth of the Son of God wasn't first announced to any of those exalted and powerful mentioned back in verses 1 and 2. Instead, in keeping with Christ's humility and to to showcase His greatness, God chose to to announce the coming of the great shepherd of the sheep to common shepherds. The dark night sky was filled with light from the glory of the Lord in the same way that the light of the world had shone into its sin-stained darkness. The shepherds' fear at the appearance of this angel and the glory of the Lord is replaced quickly with comfort and joy. The angel has good news for them. The King, the Savior, the Christ, the Lord has been born into the world of men in fulfillment of Isaiah 9. And as such, His birth is rightly honored by this angel and the whole host of heaven with Him. This baby lying in a manger may look like every other baby, but He truly is the King of kings and Lord of lords. In sending His Son, God was securing, fueling His praise to come through all eternity in a way that defies all of our earthly expectations. You see, this announcement informs the shepherds of what's really happening in this moment. Never before was any birth honored in this way because never before and never again would something like this happen. God was being born as a man. The heavenly host makes sure that the shepherds and we along with them see that this baby boy is unique. And the peace on earth the angels are referring to there in verse 14 is is talking about God's peace with man, specifically with those He's pleased with. But if we stop and reflect on our lives, we might ask ourselves, 
How could God ever be pleased with me? Well, to answer that question, we need to answer another question. That's, how can we as sinners have peace with holy God? Well, the baby in the manger is the answer. The Prince of Peace made peace by the blood of His cross. He gave His life after living out the complete and sinless obedience the law required. He took on Himself the sins of His people and the just wrath of God those sins deserved. He died in our place and then rose on the third day in order to prove that peace with the Father has been secured for all those who will ever repent of their sins and believe in Him. And this is good news for all the people, as the angel said in verse 10. Now in the immediate context, the people referenced here are the Israelites. But as we know, and we'll see a little bit clearer later in verses 31 and 32, that's, what, that's going to be expanded out to all the peoples, plural. You see, if God didn't first keep His covenant promises to Israel, there wouldn't be any reason for any other peoples to expect Him to do so for them. But now, because of God's faithfulness to keep His promises dating all the way back to Abraham and David, we now have the confidence that He will also Keep His new promises to us when we believe in Jesus. You see, this baby is born unto us. This baby is born for us. Regardless of our social status, regardless of our economic standing, regardless of the worth placed on us by our society, God shows His great compassion and love in Jesus for all those who will receive Him. This Son, the Son of God, is given unto us by faith in His name. If we embrace the Gospel as the only way of salvation, then the promises, blessings, and benefits purchased by Jesus are given to sinners like us. Friends, what do you think will make God pleased with you? Well, maybe you think that since you've tried to be a good person, and, and you're certainly not as bad as some of those wicked people you hear about on TV, that maybe that's enough. I think certainly there would be some in that category. But I think the bigger category that many of us fall into, many of our friends that don't know Jesus fall into, is that we're convinced there is no way God would ever be pleased with us if He knew what we'd done. If He knew what we were like. Well, friend, I get to be like the angel here and tell you good news of great joy that peace with God is offered to you through the life, death, and resurrection of another, of the Savior, Jesus Christ. 
But in order for this to be good news for you, you must receive it by repenting of your sins and believing in Jesus. Jesus is the greatest gift that has ever been given. And like every gift, you must receive Him by faith. And if you'd like to talk to someone more about this, I'd be honored to talk to you at the end of this service. Come find me. Come talk to the person that you came with. Any of us would be happy to talk to you more about this Jesus. Now church, there are two ways that we can honor Jesus like these angels did. And the first is obvious, I think. And that is to sing His praises. Now we've kind of had a little bit of a running joke in the office. Of, uh, Mitch, Tammy, and I have been talking about the fact that it never says directly that the angels sing His praises. Even though we talk about hark the herald angel sing. We see this throughout the Scriptures as we're trying to find it. We're tracing these things out. And we find say, say, say all over the place. Uh, But at the end of the day, we know from the rest of Scripture that we are called to sing God's praises. If it's drudgery for you to sing when we gather together, if you don't find yourself overflowing in praise as God brings a song to mind that expresses some truth you've read in the Scripture, then I'd say you've you've got to look at your heart. We don't have to do any kind of scientific equation to know that when we see something beautiful, something wonderful, when we have enjoyed something, it is natural. It is the way God has wired us that we would express that to other people. This is why I turn on the radio station and all kinds of different people have their own kinds of songs. But we as God's people should be filled with praise for what He has done. This is why we should sing Christmas music year-round. Maybe not exactly. But we can sing joy to the world every day. Because Christ has come and we have great hope. So then I would encourage you, even as you think about our gathering together, this is why, even though we are going to miss Mitch dearly, we trust that our singing isn't wrapped up in our song leader our worship is wrapped up in our lord so then even though someone might be different leading us in the songs because god hasn't changed our worship remains the same we offer him our praise our delight in who he is and what he has done and it should be something that's in our house in our hearts bubbling out from our mouths and the next is also connected to this And we see this brought out by the shepherds and the way they respond in verses 15 through 21. And that is that the birth of Jesus was heralded. The birth of Jesus was heralded. We tell other people about this Savior. Let's read these verses now. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen, 
as it had been told them. And at the end of eight days, when he was circumcised, he was called Jesus. The name given to the angel before given by the angel before he was conceived in the womb. Now in this section, the shepherds are filled with joy. The crowds are filled with wonder, and Mary ponders. I think the the big picture truth that Luke is trying to help us understand here is that there are, even at his birth, different levels of comprehension about just who this child is. But Luke ends this section by telling us very plainly and directly, this child is the one that Gabriel spoke of. Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the Most High, the Son of God, the Savior. The waiting is over. The King has come. The hope of God has now entered into the world of men. So church, how should we respond to news as good as this? Well, we should respond like the angels, yes, and also like these shepherds who do the same thing. They spread this heavenly message here on earth. Now, think for just a moment about how God could have chosen to publish this news. And and then think about who exactly it was that He chose to be His spokesman. He could have written the name of Jesus across the sky. He could have sent angels to appear before every dignitary on the planet. But instead, God chose to herald the good news of Jesus' birth through some local, lowly shepherds. Why? Well, we serve a God who loves to take the foolish, the weak, the low, and despised things of the world and use them to shame what the world exalts. And the thing is, His pattern is still the same for me and for you. God took these shepherds who were minding their own business one minute and transformed them into good news spreaders the next. They hadn't been to seminary. They didn't know all the answers. These were ordinary, blue-collar men who had simply been tasked with telling others what they had seen and heard. Our calling is no different. The only requirements for telling people about Jesus is that we ourselves have seen and heard Jesus in His Word and believed in Him. It's not about us. The power is not in the messenger. The power is in the message. In order to even be a Christian, we have to have a fundamental understanding of the Gospel. And if we have a fundamental understanding of the Gospel, then we are able to explain it to someone else. Every person saved by the Gospel is able to share the Gospel. You don't have to be a great communicator. You have to open your mouth and tell people what God has done in sending His Son into the world to save sinners like you and me and them. 
Now, it's well known. If you want to make people feel guilty and convicted, talk to them about their evangelism. Brothers and sisters, I don't know of any person ever who has ever been satisfied with how much they share the gospel. Most of us have so many missed opportunities, so much failure in our evangelism that it can just discourage us to the point of feeling like we're not even going to try because we'll just mess it up again. But that's not an option for us. You don't get to not try to share the gospel. Not if you've been given a new heart that can't keep silent. Now some of us, for sure, we've got lots of opportunities and other of us only have a few. But the reality is we have all been given opportunities by God and we are all called to be faithful with them. So let me just encourage you. Don't overcomplicate sharing the gospel as a legitimate excuse in your mind to avoid sharing it. Personal evangelism is as simple as a conversation with an unbeliever about who Jesus is, what He has done, and why it matters for them. And if you're sitting in the pew even right now, and you couldn't accurately and succinctly explain the Gospel if you were put on the spot, can I just plead with you to seek out help from another member of this church? I know of zero pastors. We can double check with Brother Foster. I don't know of any pastor who has ever turned away a church member who came to them and said, you know, I'd really like help knowing how to share the Gospel. I don't care what we've got going on in our lives. We're going to make time for you in that. But here's the thing, and I'm not trying to beat you up, but there is absolutely no shame in seeking out help to share the Gospel well. But there is shame in your need of help keeping you from sharing the Gospel. The truth is, if you'd say, well, I don't know how to share the Gospel, but you're not doing anything to change that, the reality is, you don't want to share the Gospel. Now, loved ones, if we want to see our community one to Christ, if we're willing to give sacrificially to support the spread of the Gospel around the world in hard-to-reach places, but we won't open our mouths, there's something wrong. This is the best news in the world. In history, God has come to man to save, to earth to save sinners. We are filled with all kinds of garbage for news. If you haven't figured that out in 2020, do that this afternoon. We have a category of fake news now. But we have this message of hope. Our world looks at 2020 and says, wow, that wasn't pleasant. 
our world looks at much of what happened in this year and says, well, we tried to come together, but I don't know how well we did it. And we come with the best news that has ever been told to give them real hope. Not hope of a different president. Not hope of a 100% effective vaccine. Not the hope of our stock market turning around and having everything we ever hoped of. Real hope. Hope that lasts for eternity. Christ has come. Christ has come. So as we prepare as a church for 2021, let's respond to Jesus' first coming by helping as many people as we can be ready for His second coming. Friends, the King has come and He will come again. Let's pray. Father, what a glorious gospel. What good news you have given to us. Father, as we look to ourselves, as we see our own sin, our failures, our weaknesses, our struggles, Father, thank you for giving us a word that takes the eyes, the focus off of us and puts them on your Son. Help us to respond with the joy of this scene. The joy of the angels. The joy of these shepherds. With the wonder wonder and amazement of the mother of Jesus. Help us to respond in a way that gives honor to what has happened in you sending your son. That he might live, die, and be raised to give us eternal hope by faith in him. Fill us with a passion to tell other people. And bless us as we do that by giving us joy. And we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.